Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Seventy-year-old Mary Emsley worked as a landlady in East London. She was cold and ruthless towards her tenants, and there was no shortage of people who disliked her. She was found dead in her home in 1860, and police struggled to narrow down suspects at first. Eventually, one of Mary's former employees, James Mullins, contacted the police to accuse a potential culprit. James claimed that Mary's rent collector, Walter M., had murdered her. But when the police looked into James's theory, they began to think that he fit the profile. They arrested James, but other evidence was circumstantial. And in fact, James had been in good standing with Mary before she was killed. As such, James's arrest was not the end of the story. It was only the beginning. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Mary Emsley. Last week, we discussed the gruesome discovery of Mary's body and the man who claimed he knew who killed her. This week, we'll detail the numerous trials and investigations into Mary's case and revelations that came centuries later. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. After Mary Emsley was found dead, the town coroner, Dr. Gill, opened an official inquest into the crime. Soon, 58-year-old James Mullins was taken into custody. The jury caught wind of the arrest. They also heard about Inspector Thornton's suspicion toward James. Thornton believed there was evidence that linked Mary's former employee to the crime. Namely, James waxed his bootlaces with the same type of wax that was used on the string tied around the parcel containing items stolen from Mary's home. And police found a hammer in James's house that Dr. Gill believed could have been the murder weapon. Because of this, the jury and the public turned on James. They started researching the suspect on their own, 
and they found several things that only made him look more guilty. They learned that both James and his daughter, also named Mary, had been convicted of theft in the past. The jury now felt distrust toward the entire Mullins family. However, had they known the full story, they might have been more sympathetic. Mary previously worked as a domestic servant, and although she was convicted of stealing one shilling from her master, she claimed she found the shilling on the floor. James's story was a bit more complicated. Even his lawyer became frustrated when he questioned James about it from the other side of cell bars. James, how am I supposed to help you if you won't tell me the truth? It's no longer relevant. I did my time. It's all relevant. They're looking into your past. I used to be a police officer, you know. I was an inspector at Scotland Yard, promoted from sergeant quite quickly. Oh, this is good. It speaks to your character. Not so fast. I was given an important job, to infiltrate and spy on a group of Irish nationalists. But the nationalists discovered me, so I escaped back to England. Then I was demoted back to sergeant with no explanation. Why do you think that happened? It doesn't matter why. All that matters is that after I served my country for months, I was demoted. To make matters worse, I got into an accident which rendered me unable to perform police duties. I had to take a new job at a goods yard. My salary and pension were gone, and I couldn't support my family. So I started stealing and pawning goods. James explained that he was caught and sentenced to six years in prison. He couldn't understand what compelled the judge to punish him so harshly. He was released in 1859, just one year before Mary was killed. Even though James had a reason for resorting to theft, this jury still reasoned that if he'd committed one crime, he could commit another. They speculated that he might have been stealing from Mary before he killed her, and that he might have been the person who took the items found in the parcel. So when James appeared at the trial, the jury had already painted him guilty. In addition, the prosecution used theatrics and confusion to further influence them. James's lawyer tried to keep focus. Inspector Thornton, when you searched Mr. Mullins' house, you found the wax and hammer. Did you find anything else of interest? Indeed. We had discovered that Mrs. Mullins had pawned a silver pencil case that was known to have belonged to the deceased. And that pencil case had blood on it. Human blood. Objection! This was not found at the house. But it is relevant, is it not? And that's not all. We found something else extremely concerning just outside the Mullins' door. A boot. It had nails in its sole which resembled the bloody footprint found at the crime scene. Hmm, I'm confused. Nails, a footprint. It's hard for me to picture. I think I can help you, if you'll just give me a moment. Where is he going? Inspector Thornton soon returned, carrying something wrapped in cloth. He took his time uncovering it, building the suspense. Finally, he revealed the floorboard from Mary Emsley's house, the one with the bloody boot print on it. However, Thornton did not have the boot. Even if he did have the boot, it still wouldn't have proved anything. It was common practice for people to nail the soles onto their boots. Not to mention, James lived in a building with many other residents. 
Thornton's testimony about the pencil case should have also been inadmissible, or at least questioned more thoroughly. The town minister and Mary's friend, Joseph Biggs, testified that while Mary did own a silver pencil case, the one shown in the courtroom looked different than the one he'd seen in her house. And he was one of the only people known to visit her regularly. And this wasn't the only baseless argument. Dr. Gill claimed it was likely a hammer like Mullins could have been the murder weapon. He said that the shape of the hammer corresponded to Mary's head wounds, but the hammer wasn't unique. Any similar tool could have caused those injuries. As all of this played out, James sat quietly. His lawyer had instructed him to do so, under the notion that if James showed even the slightest temper, the jury would convict him. It was a common defense strategy and usually an effective one. But in this case, the jury seemed to interpret James's silence as an acknowledgement of guilt. James had little going for him other than his alibi. He said he was home with his family on the night of Mary Emsley's murder. His family corroborated his story, but the jury assumed that they were just covering for him. The jury was so prejudiced against James that near the end of the trial, even the judge was frustrated. Need I remind the jury that you cannot convict on suspicion alone? I urge you, learn the definition of circumstantial evidence. And yet, even after the judge spoke out, the jury still decided to convict James Mullins of willfully murdering Mary Emsley. And so, in October of 1860, the judge reluctantly sentenced James to death by public execution. At that time, the judge also made a final statement. If you can even now argue that you are innocent of the charge, I do not doubt that every attention will be paid to the proof laid before those who carry out the finding of the law. This statement likely baffled James, who already had his chance to prove his innocence. The judge's comment might have simply caused more resentment and confusion from both sides. But it wasn't entirely off base. New information did come to light after the trial. As James awaited execution, he finally spoke up, writing letters to lawyers and newspapers regarding the issues with the prosecution's arguments. He included this information in those letters. I came home from work on Monday, August 13th, between the hours of 6 and 7 o'clock, and did not leave my house until 8 o'clock the next morning. My son slept in the same room as me. Additionally, the boot that was found belonged to a man named Mahoney, who came forward after the trial to say it was his. I make this statement so that the public may know that my life has been taken away by the most false evidence ever given in a court of justice. The public hadn't expected this. James was an Irish Catholic, so they assumed he'd deliver a last-minute confession to save himself from eternal persecution. However, another part of his statement caused some to believe it was a confession. James also wrote that he believed Walter M. was innocent. Some thought this was James's way of confessing guilt without actually saying it. But others found themselves more confused. After all, James and Walter had been the two main suspects. They didn't know who else could have killed Mary. Journalists in particular focused on James's letter. 
For the first time since his trial had begun, people wondered outright whether the jury had convicted the wrong man. It was clear that the judge thought so, after all. Unfortunately, there was simply no time for them to delve deeper. The jury had made its decision, and James would soon be executed. Coming up, more unanswered questions lead to the Crown's involvement in the case. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this podcast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In October of 1860, 58-year-old James Mullins was convicted of murdering Mary Emsley. He was sentenced to death. The case against him was built entirely upon circumstantial evidence, but that didn't soften the public's opinion towards him. Based on newspaper reports at the time, EastEnders were scared that this gruesome case would go unsolved. Both the prosecution and the jury felt pressure to convict James in order to assuage fear that the killer was still out there. On November 19th, roughly 30,000 people showed up to watch James be hanged. For a group who had, just weeks earlier, been appalled by Mary's gruesome death, they were eager to watch James die that day. Some people climbed buildings or on statues for a better view. Others brought opera glasses. As he was led to the gallows, James asked one of the sheriffs to look out for his family. When asked if he had any last words, James didn't reply. He appeared to pray silently, even as the noose was placed around his neck. The platform opened, and James died instantly. But James's death didn't put an end to Mary Emsley's case. The crowd had hardly dispersed before East Enders began to wonder what would be done with her sizable estate. Many felt that there couldn't be closure until the matter was settled. This was likely because so many people believed Mary's wealth served as the motive for her murder. 
However, some also thought the real culprit might be one of her surviving family members. Mary didn't leave a will, so her nephew Samuel was the presumptive heir to her fortune. But that claim was disputed by a formidable opponent, the Crown. Talk of Mary's money spread far and wide. Even royalty wanted a shot at claiming it. If the Crown could prove that Samuel was not actually one of Mary's relatives, then by law, it would be entitled to all of her money and property. So, in 1862, two years after Mary's murder, an official case was filed between Samuel Williams, a poor shoemaker, and the Crown. The Queen's proctor came to court, ready to fight. We're here to determine who has rights to Mrs. Mary Emsley's estate. We do not believe Samuel Williams is an heir. You see, there is another family who claimed that Mary Emsley was actually the offspring of Mary Spencer, a woman with whom Mrs. Emsley's father also cohabitated. But sir, Mary Emsley was always referred to as my aunt, and I've never heard of a Spencer family. Have you heard the surname Graham or Armstrong? Because women of those names also claim to have cohabitated with her father. Any one of these women could be Mary's birth mother, which would mean that you are not related to the deceased and cannot claim to be her legitimate heir. Can any of those people prove their claims? Many people claim not to have known you even existed. The Queen's proctor called forth several witnesses who said they'd always thought Mary had no living relatives. It's unclear exactly who some of these people were. However, we do know that they all believed they were entitled to some of Mary's fortune. Two of the known witnesses include William Rose, Mary's solicitor, and Walter M., her rent collector. Both men asserted that Mary had owed them money before she passed. The Queen's proctor likely believed the Crown would get the money in the end and grew tired of everyone else's selfish and unsubstantiated claims. So when Joseph Biggs was called to speak, the proctor decided to have a little fun. First, he poked fun at Joseph's walking stick and appeared impatient as he waited for the minister to come before him. Once Joseph was ready to speak, the proctor pulled some unkind tricks from his sleeve. Mr. Biggs, you've repeatedly claimed you were a friend of Mary Emsley's. That's correct. And yet you now claim that you were owed a portion of her estate. Why would a friend be entitled to her money? I did her bookkeeping. She always promised she would pay me, but she never got the chance. Once, she even asked me what I wanted to be paid. If that's true, that sounds like more than a friendship. As I said, I worked for her. Workers don't determine their own wages. Uh, well, there is more. I proposed marriage several times. <laughs> what did she say when you proposed? She was considering it. Even though she didn't accept, she didn't refuse either. Joseph likely felt embarrassed and exposed. He was depicted as a desperate man who bent to Mary's will, blind to the fact that she was using him. Not to mention, his testimony didn't win him any money. But it didn't win the crown any either. Regardless of the proctor's showmanship, his teasing didn't win over the jury. In the end, 
Samuel was granted Mary's assets. This should have marked the end of the entire affair, but disputes over Mary's bloodline lasted seven more years. Things weren't fully settled until 1869, when Mary's estate was split amongst everyone who proved to be a blood relative. But even that didn't bring closure to the matter of who killed Mary. Even though a man had been executed and the estate was settled, 32 years later, one man would dust off the mystery. In 1901, the writer Arthur Conan Doyle, best known for authoring The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, was tasked with writing a magazine article about Mary's murder. He planned to publish this article in The Strand, where many of his famous texts can still be found. The case fascinated Doyle, who had a medical degree and often researched cold cases, as well as cases that were technically solved, but not to his satisfaction. He referred to this case as debatable. As Doyle began reviewing Mary's murder and James Mullen's conviction, he came to believe this case was debatable. He became certain that a miscarriage of justice had occurred. In his eyes, James might have been innocent. As Doyle sat in his office reviewing newspaper articles and witness statements, he likely felt akin to his fictional detective. However, while Sherlock Holmes often remained calm in the face of chaos, Arthur was angered by everything he learned. He was especially aggrieved by the fact that the jury ignored the judge's warning on circumstantial evidence. But he took a page out of his own book and calmed himself down for the sake of the investigation. He focused his attention on the most perplexing aspect of the case. I can't understand it. There was no sign of forced entry. These records indicate that no neighbors heard her let anyone in. But one neighbor did see someone inside the house on Tuesday morning. Hmm. Mary's acquaintances said she never let strangers into her home. So it seems she knew this person. This makes the choice to stay the night all the more disturbing. To Doyle, this was more than a criminal mystery. It was a psychological puzzle. He racked his brain for months, trying to figure out what kind of a person would sleep next to a corpse. He tried to get inside this person's head, but ultimately, this tactic failed. By the time Doyle published his essay, he admitted that he had no idea who killed Mary Emsley. His writing also showed that his attitude towards James had changed. After reading the evidence, one is left with an irresistible impression that, though Mullins was very likely guilty, the police were never able to establish the details of the crime, and that there was a risk of a miscarriage of justice when the death sentence was carried out. The man who had written some of the most compelling mysteries of the 19th century could not solve this case. However, Doyle's lasting fame sparked interest in the mystery centuries later. Coming up, a modern-day writer resurrects Mary Emsley's case. Now back to the story. In 1901, about 40 years after Mary Emsley was killed, author Arthur Conan Doyle attempted to solve the mystery. 
Public interest in the case had never waned, and the crime novelist was struck by the preposterous trial that sent James Mullins to his grave. Even the creator of Sherlock Holmes couldn't form a solid conclusion. However, over a hundred years later, someone else formed a theory that would clear James Mullins' name. In 2017, author and journalist Sinclair McKay published a book about Mary's case entitled The Mile End Murder. Sinclair is well-versed in both history and mystery. He's written several articles and non-fiction bestsellers about spies, codebreakers, and cold cases. Sinclair was particularly interested in Mary's murder because it was one of the few crimes that Arthur Conan Doyle couldn't solve. It presented a unique challenge, especially given the enduring mystery of the case. He started by examining some of the unanswered questions. The first being, why did Mary let this person into her home? Sinclair, like Doyle, believed that the murderer was someone Mary knew. But if that were true, it begged the next question. Why did he do it? While money was a plausible motive, Sinclair determined that inheritance seekers would have had no luck since Mary didn't keep in touch with her relatives. This belief then revealed another possible motive, anger. From there, Sinclair arrived at this third question, the very same question that troubled Arthur Conan Doyle. Why would someone have spent the night with Mary's corpse? Sinclair looked back through all of the court documents and newspaper articles he had dug up. He searched for someone who fit the profile he'd concocted, a man who Mary trusted enough to let into her home, who was angry enough to kill her, and who also had a reason to stay the night. Sinclair realized that a man who checked these three boxes would not have drawn attention to himself. Neighbors may have even forgotten that they saw him near Mary's house that day. He also would have visited her home before. Court documents claim that none of Mary's neighbors heard her questioning an unexpected visitor from her window as she usually did, and that she never lit the candles in her house. But to Sinclair, those details didn't necessarily mean that Mary didn't let the visitor inside. It could have meant she didn't want him to stay. She didn't make her home warm or inviting. She may have been irritated by this person, but not enough to turn him away. Perhaps she didn't want to harm their relationship, even if she didn't like him. So Sinclair concluded that Mary must have needed something from her killer. Joseph, why are you here? We agreed yesterday that we'd see each other tomorrow. Oh, can't a man drop in to visit a friend? I don't have anywhere for you to sit, I'm afraid. You'll have to lean on your walking stick. That's quite dark, Mary. Won't you light a candle, or... It is getting late. Tell me what you've come for and be on your way. Oh, you're not here to propose again, are you? I've told you. Oh, no, no. Unless, of course, you've agreed. I have not, and I will never. You just want my money. That is not true. However, I do want to speak to you on the matter of finance. Joseph, if you're going to ask me to donate to the church again, I will strike you. I've given what I can. You've given far less than you're able. But that's not why I'm here. I've come to speak with you about personal payment. I've been handling your books for quite some time now. 
Isn't greed a sin? Mary probably wanted to avoid having to pay Joseph and changed the subject to the wallpaper she'd just purchased. She told the minister how much she planned to resell it for. But this only galvanized Joseph. He lived in a run-down tenement, not unlike the ones Mary owned. So he felt she should use the wallpaper to spruce up her buildings. But Mary waved off the suggestion. Then, when Joseph tried to steer the conversation back to his payment, Mary snapped at him. What gives you the right to bother an old widow about money? I thought you were helping me. Of course. I'm happy to help you, Mary. But keeping your books takes up time that I could spend working. Frankly, I don't see what else you could do with your time. You're barely useful to me. Joseph's face fell. He'd always considered Mary a friend, but suddenly he wasn't sure why. The truth became clear. She was selfish, and she was only using him. It's possible that Joseph snapped once he thought of how much time he'd wasted trying to help Mary, not to mention all the embarrassment he'd suffered by proposing to her so many times. Suddenly, Joseph lifted his walking stick, swung, and dented the wall. Then he brought it down onto Mary's head. Mary slumped down to the floor, and blood spurted from her wound. It covered the walls, furniture, and even Joseph himself. Then, as the life slowly began to leave Mary's eyes, Joseph realized what he'd done. Mary's soul was about to make its ultimate voyage as a result of his actions. The least he could do was sit with her as it happened. So the minister kept vigil and prayed over Mary as she died. When Joseph awoke the next morning, he was greeted by the stench of death. Without thinking, he opened the window. This is what Mary's neighbor Caroline had seen. Joseph couldn't leave during the light of day, so he waited until nightfall. All the while, he cowered out of sight, covered his nose, and shook each time Walter M. knocked on the door. Joseph waited until all the neighbor's candles and gas lamps were out, then slipped through the front door, making sure to lock it behind him. Then he went home. Dried blood would not have been visible on his black clothes at night, so if any passers-by did see him, they likely assumed he was headed home from a night at the pub. When he got back to his flat, Joseph cleaned his walking stick, burned his clothes in the fireplace, and rehearsed his story. You visited Mary on, on Sunday, as usual. Then you made an appointment to see her again on Tuesday. And when you knocked at the door, um, what time? Did, did Mid-morning? Mid Wait, when did Walter come? Yes, you came to see Mary mid-morning on Tuesday, but she did not answer the door. You didn't think anything of it. You were horrified to learn what happened. She, she was your friend. What a tragedy. As police began questioning people, a stroke of luck befell Joseph. Detectives brought Walter M. and James Mullins into custody. When the inquest began, still no one suspected Joseph. All eyes turned to James. Sinclair posits that James pilfered small items from Mary throughout the time he worked for her. 
he took things that Mary wouldn't have noticed were gone and sold them for extra cash. But because of his experience as a police officer, he knew that as detectives looked deeper into Mary's life, they would discover what he'd been doing. James had only been out of prison for a year and couldn't fathom going back. So he blamed someone else for the crime. It's not clear whether James had it in for Walter M., or whether he just thought Walter was an easy target. Either way, he planted the parcel on Walter's property. The rest is history. Joseph would have watched as James was hanged for a crime he didn't commit. He probably tried to reconcile the fact that he had now been the cause of not one, but two deaths. Then he got back to business, attempting to get his piece of the pie. And when he instead suffered public embarrassment at the hands of the Queen's proctor, he slunk into the shadows. After that event, no one saw or heard from Joseph again. Perhaps he moved out of town, terrified that the truth would eventually be uncovered. Or maybe he left out of shame, resolving himself to a life of loneliness and reclusivity. Guilt would have followed Joseph Biggs to his grave. He never would have known that he'd committed the perfect crime, one that stumped authorities and that even a famed crime researcher couldn't solve, one that would take over a century to finally put to rest. Of course, all of this is speculation. It's a fantastic story that explains most of the evidence in a very satisfying way. However, so many years have passed since Mary's murder, it's impossible for us to prove that Joseph Biggs was her killer. It's also entirely possible that Joseph Biggs had nothing to do with the murder at all. Perhaps the true killer was executed for his crime or has never been named in the history of the investigation. But as Arthur Conan Doyle put it, that's what makes Mary Emsley's case debatable. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Mary Emsley's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mile End Murder by Sinclair McKay extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Melissa Medina, Laith Walshlager, Charlie West, and Cameron Nicod. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. From 
For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.